a few ideas past you. Really evaluate where your strengths and weaknesses are, and be honest. Who are you? I'm Peggy Olsen, the new girl. <laughs> you are good with words. We can say anything we want. Well, gentlemen, I don't think I have to tell you what you just witnessed here. Advertising is based on one thing. Happiness. Welcome to Mad Men Men Men. I'm John Negroni. I'm the co-host of the Cinemaholics podcast. I'm also a film critic. And I have two gentlemen, mad men, men, here with me to talk about a TV show that changed my life, uh, that is very important to me. And I'm about to find out what it means to them as we go on a crazy journey together to talk about what is one of the greatest TV series of all time, ushered in in a whole era of prestige television, put AMC on the map as one of the, these guys are wont to say. Let me introduce them. First, he's my co-host at Cinemaholics. He's also a writer for Collider.com. His name is Will Ashton. Hey, Will. Hello. Oh, oh Will, you're getting smoke all in, into my eyes. Put that <laughs> cigarette away. I apologize. Uh, let, me take, put, let me put it out right now, and uh, there you go. This guy, he, he's known as the pitch bitch. He's always pitching. And uh, I've known him for quite a long time now. Uh, he's a pop culture obsessive. Uh, one of one of the happiest human beings I've never met, uh, but of course I have met him. We used to live in the same town, and I miss him quite dearly. I haven't seen you in person in quite a while. Mike Overhulse, otherwise known as Mike Overkill. Hey, Mike. Hey, John. How's it going? Mike, it's been too long since you and I saw each other like on any sort of like video, let alone in person. It's true. And uh, I gotta say, I'm kind of digging the hair. Oh, yeah, you know, it's that pandemic grow out that just didn't go away. It's just like quaffed in like just the right way. It's pretty attractive. Um, yeah. Anyway, we're talking about Mad Men. And uh, the idea behind this is that we're going to be going episode by episode and kind of unpacking what the show really means to us. We're going to try deconstructing it. And he- here, here's the thing, though. We're, we're all kind of coming to the show a little bit differently to some degree. Um, I'll start by saying I've watched the show many times over. I've studied the show a lot. I've worked in advertising this show is very important to me. I was watching it while it was airing. Um, I'm quite obsessed with it. And Mike, what's your background with Mad Men? Are you mad about these men? Oh, I'm so mad. So I've I have only seen the the whole show once, and it was long ago or long enough ago that I today to go went to go watch the episode, and I went to Netflix and was like, "Oh, Mad Men isn't here anymore." That's how long yeah. it's been. Did you go? Did you go to Amazon? Yeah, um, I watched it Prime with all the commercials, mm-hmm. baby. I own it on uh, on the Apple TV, so like I had the episodes download, and so I wish I could share it with you all, but you know it's not as easy to log in, and do all that fun stuff. Not that I would do such an illegal thing. Anyway, uh, Will, you are a little different though. You've never really watched. You haven't watched the whole show. You watched what the first season? Yeah. So about I want to say like a decade ago, or maybe a little over a decade ago, probably around 2010, I dived into the show because yeah, obviously it was a big deal. I mean, even. A teenager like myself at the time was like, I got to watch this Mad Men show. Everyone keeps talking about it. And uh, yeah, I mean, I saw the first season. I dug it. But I knew it was a sort of show where I couldn't binge it, even though that wasn't quite, I think, a term quite yet in 2010. Uh, I knew I had to appreciate it like a fine wine or a fine whiskey. You know, Mm -hmm. I had to kind of take it in and absorb it and contemplate it. And uh, I really enjoyed the first season. I wanted to keep watching it. But 
at the time, my TV watching methods were not great unless it was a show like Breaking Bad, which I watched around the same time and just instantly got hooked with. And I watched that live and I really got into that and the theories about that. So, um, you know, I, I definitely appreciated Mad Men when I saw it and I watched a little bit of season two, I'll bet somewhat indirectly, but I never quite got the experience of uh, catching up with it. And I wanted to, I just never had the opportunity. So I am thankful for this uh, fledging podcast that we have that I'll finally have an excuse to go through the whole series, including rewatching the first season for what I think is the first time in a decade. Yeah, I mean, you know, what's you know, what's interesting about that, because you bring up Breaking Bad. We were kind of talking about this before we started. But you know, Breaking Bad and Mad Men are really the one two punch that brought AMC to like what it is. They would they wouldn't do Walking Dead for a few more years. Uh, but Mad Men was their first original series, and it was their prestige drama, right? But Breaking Bad, that had like a whole fandom behind it. They had people, like you said, theorizing and stuff. Mad Men yeah. never had that, though. It just had like a really solid fan base, and it has like really good memes. <laughs> like it's, right. it's fondly remembered and still you know talked about today. But that was a show, though, where Mad Men, I, at least from my recollection of it, it became a sort of instantaneous hit. Like, as soon as it aired the first season, it was already accomplished, already well acclaimed, and mm-hmm. people were only growing to like it more as it went along. Whereas Breaking Bad, even while it was having the same acclaim and getting Emmy recognition for uh, the writing and for Brian Cranston, I feel like it wasn't until it hit Netflix that people were binging the show and really getting into it. Yeah. So it was like that last season or last couple seasons where it really struck fire and became this cultural phenomenon. But I remember when I was watching it, it was very well liked, but I had to like kind of describe it for people because it wasn't that well known. But then my first year of college, like around 2011, that's when people were actually discovering the show. And they were like, oh yeah, the show you're telling us about, it's actually amazing. I was like, I know. You were right. <laughs> yeah. You <laughs> got to watch, watch it. it yeah. <laughs> right. Well, that's so what I it, don't know. But that's around that's, when Mad Men hit Netflix, right? Because that's when I maybe. started watching it was 2011. Right. It, but I feel like the first... Yeah four seasons on Netflix. And then when the fifth season came out, I was like at that point already hooked. But I feel like when uh, Mad Men hit Netflix, it wasn't like it, it didn't become famous in the same way that Breaking Bad finally found its widespread recognition. I feel like, it, you know, like it was like a wildfire when Breaking Bad hit Netflix, whereas Mad Men, it was already a big, huge hit and then became yeah, bigger yeah. because people could stream it. You know, what? is that accurate to say? I guess it was a bit of a trickle. Is this around the time when you were watching it, Mike? Yeah, no, I came late to it. I felt my issue with starting Mad Men was it felt like that show my parents liked at first. I'm a little bit of the baby of the group. I was only 12 when the show started airing. Oh my uh, gosh, are you like allowed to be here? I'm not. Are I, you, are I'm you not allowed to be, allowed drinking? To be drinking right now, but <laughs> I am, baby. Let's go. Uh, but that's, you know, Breaking Bad was cool, right? I was starting middle school. Uh, it was about drugs, right? It had a lot of appeal, I think, to a younger crowd. Where it was tougher to get into Mad Men first. You turn it on and you're like, all right, this guy works for an ad agency. That, that was yeah. Tougher. Where, when are there, where are the guns? Like, I think people mm-hmm. were expecting Sopranos because this was Matthew Weiner who had written and directed for the Sopranos and yeah. with David Chase. And then he went on to do Mad Men, his own thing. Right. And actually the script for the tell or the teleplay, I guess, technically for the Mad Men pilot is what got him the job on Sopranos because he had this teleplay for a long time. I don't know exactly how long, but I know it had it a, a bit of a reputation. Yeah. Right. Like, and it was uh, not a blacklisted screenplay, but it was one of those like TV pilots that like a lot of people talked about and were like, man, right. this got this has to get made. This would be yeah. incredible. Or I thought it was like one of those things where it's like, you're never going to get this made because it's like 
too high budget for TV at the time, but it's so clear that you're talented. So we want to hire you for this mm-hmm. show, or at least that was a case for David Chase when he got hired for Matt or for uh, Sopranos. I want to bring this up several times while we're going through the first season, but there are so many times in the first season where you can tell that they were trying to add in stuff to make it more accessible and mainstream. They do a little bit of it in this episode. So I do want to, I do want to like put a little little pin on that, put a little like bookmark because it it is like people say that the first season is the weakest season. I don't fully agree with that. I think it has really great moments. I think the second season is probably my least favorite. But that's to say, like, I love all of the seasons quite a bit. I think like once you get past the second season, it just gets better and better and better. And it never, like, loses steam, in my opinion, anyway. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. It's just wild to me, too, that people say that about the first season. Because even just the pilot alone, I would say of pilots I've seen, this is one of my favorite pilots of a show ever. It gives you so much mm-hmm. about the characters. It sets so much up. That's going to happen, not just later this season, but throughout the entire series. There's so much foreshadowing. ton of it. Ton, like, really good point of dialogue. And uh, there are some things that they kind of drop, for, you know? Like I'm, and I, every time I rewatch the pilot, I'm just like, oh, yeah, the switchboard operators. <laughs> like, that never really turned into anything, even though they casted these people. Um, let's, was let's, that yeah. because the actress that plays Flo was one of them, and she obviously got you know, that big cushy gig. Or she got was a little that progressive separate? with Chris Shaw yes. gone to yeah. Bob's Burgers. Well, that too, yeah. She yeah. was, well, yeah, the Daily Show, uh, I think at the time. I feel bad for the third switchboard lady because she might be famous her own right, I don't know, but I feel <laughs> yeah, like... We're not really giving her her due. <laughs> right. But I just feel like, you know, you see that because I, I remembered um, the actress that plays Flo. I apologize, I don't remember her name off the top of my head, but I remembered she was one of the switchboard operators, but I forgot that Kristen Shaw was one too so i was still kind of like oh wow when i was rewatching this pilot and seeing her again but i felt bad for that third actor because like i'm sure she's you know she's probably a lovely lady and i don't want to dismiss her talents but it's just it's like you just you know you just don't elicit the same reaction seeing you unfortunately as these other two you know well-recognized actresses but and maybe it's me speaking out of turn i don't want to say the actress is stephanie courtney i just looked it up and yeah because she started doing the commercials for progressive and literally in 2008 so Mad Men, I guess, you know, was instrumental and uh, it, it saw something in her, I guess. I don't know. But uh, OK, so the first episode of Mad Men is called Smoke in Your Eyes or Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. I always leave it gets out by accident. But uh, you kind of touched on it already, Mike, how this episode of television is very much like a, it's like a short story, the way that it's structured. Like it has such a clear like beginning, middle end. You can really like absorb it as like a little bit of like a mini sort of novel almost. And that's my favorite thing about it. Okay, so the episode actually starts with we see Don from like behind, which I don't want to give stuff away because Will obviously hasn't seen the finale or anything. But I just will say to you, Will, like keep some of this stuff in mind of like the framing and like how they capture Will or almost (laughs) Will, Will Draper. Yeah, I know you probably know some of what happens, huh? You don't have to give it away. Uh, I mean, I know I know the last scene of the finale. Okay. I'm not going to lie to you and say otherwise. But it's other hard than to that, miss I don't it, know but we don't have really... to give it away well, for listeners. I know like the one very meme-friendly moment with Peggy, and I know the ending of the finale, like the last scene. But those are the only two things I know about the finale of Mad Men at this we're gonna keep time. it all. We're going to keep the rest of it a mystery. Uh, just like Don okay. Draper himself, right? But, I mean, if I may, I mean, like I... One thing I really like about this opening shot, and I don't know if we mentioned this before when we were talking about The Sopranos, but Alan Taylor also did 
the um, pilot. He was a director yeah. of it, and obviously he was a big part of the Sopranos, including directing the Many Saints of New York. Also, Newark. Game of Thrones, um, and uh, a lot of episodes of Game of Thrones, and also Thor The Dark World, one of the better Marvel movies, sure. right? Yeah, not exactly. <laughs> but I really like this opening shot where it kind of feels like... Um, you know, like there's like this sort of idealism about the 50s in the sense of like you're kind of like people don't really have a uh, accurate depiction of what the 50s is. And I like this like this uh, opening shot kind of like gives you a sort of wistful look at the 50s, like, you know, like everything you sort of expect outside of the, like the black and white photography. And you kind of get that as it kind of zooms into like Don Draper and he's like an, you know, eagle eye, like kind of trying to absorb it. And trying to feel living in the moment, but with uh, false pretenses, like he's doing it for advertising purposes. And I really like that opening shot sort of establishes all that sort of information and gives you a firm idea about John Draper before you even know who Don Draper is. Is that fair to say? I would say, except that I don't think, like it tells you who Don Draper is, but it doesn't at the same time, which is why it's genius. Um, I, I want to mention. Well, it's advertising Don Draper in a way, right? Is that fair to say? What do you mean? Well, like it's like giving you like an like a false perception of who he is, mm. and that's like his whole job is like giving a false perception of what life. Well, yeah, is. That, then that's one of the themes of the episode. Yes, um, I, and I would say that because when we are zooming in on him, first of all, we skip the part where we have that famous text that comes up. This was uh, Alan Taylor's idea, where it's kind of giving us the. I'm, I'm going to bring it up right now so I don't butcher it, but it it's telling us like what is the the inspiration, like what does Mad Men mean? It's the name of the show, and obviously. You could probably tell it's like a, a term related to an ad man uh, in the 1960s. But specifically, as this text says, it's a term coined in the late 1950s to describe the advertising executives of Madison Avenue. They coined it. And yeah, that's a great sentence that, that <laughs> I'll always love that. Part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's the thing is like some people kind of miss that Madison Avenue, mad men, that, that's the whole point. And one of the things that they touch on in this episode is the fact that, you know, Sterling Cooper, Sterling Cooper is known as an innovative ad agency, and it's known as an ad agency that, uh, you know, it's one of the like big Madison Avenue ones, and there's that whole plot about how there is this Jewish department store that wants to hire an ad agency that would be usually like known for Chanel or whatever, like one of these other brands, right? So fantastic like efficient storytelling just the opening scene itself it's just oh yeah and, and in the opening scene too you get so much it, set, it sets the tone for what that time period was right in that first minute they hit you with mm -hmm. racism like pretty heavy-handed racism that your <laughs> protagonist just waves away and doesn't care about uh they hit you with well it's trying to be sympathetic isn't it a little bit to him or it's trying to uh make us it's trying to make us think that don draper is not that bad by contrasting us with the uh, the boss of the waiter Sam sure um, Sam's the waiter and then the boss is sort of like hey is he bothering you and but then Don is like we're just having a conversation and you're like oh he, Don's not that racist but then later in the episode Don is extremely exactly. racist <laughs> so I love that because that, but that plays in the themes of the show right and I love that what they're starting with is a cigarette ad because in the modern age even 2007 right like there is no bigger evil in the world than cigarettes. We grew up with so many commercials about how it's going to kill us. It's going to be so bad. There's, it's drilled to our head that everybody lied to us about cigarettes. It's going to kill you. And how's the show start? How do we trick mm -hmm. people into smoking more cigarettes? Mm -hmm. It's like a weird yeah. problem that they have. Like we're rooting for characters who are literally like there's a point in this episode where, you know, Don is like think like looking up and thanking God for 
you know, that like inspiration to sell a cigarette ad. And then even Roger Sterling played by John Slatter is like, you should be looking down <laughs> because right. it's, it's right it on. reminds me. Yeah. This pilot reminds me actually a lot, obviously of thank you for smoking, which deals with a lot of similar yeah. things, but I mean, that. which obviously I think that was just more of a coincidental thing. Like we said, like this pilot was written well before that movie came out. But didn't thank but, you for smoking yeah. come out, but didn't that come out after Mad Men or am I, do I have my years? Maybe I'm thinking of burn after reading. Well, well, that's what I'm saying. Well, no, no. I mean, the movie came out before, but I'm saying that the pilot was being written, mm-hmm. I think, in the late 90s, early 2000s. So I think it was just a coincidence. I don't know when the book for Thank You for Smoking was written. Me neither. That it was based on, but... Know your yeah. cigarette media literacy, okay? Before you come on to this podcast. <laughs> Nobody knows cigarettes better than Mike. He's got some cigarettes right, like, right there. They're actually in my travel case. Um, it's just <laughs> when I drink. Yeah, so... No, it's a great opening scene, and uh, I think that it gets across. Uh, another thing too, like we're talking about the duality of Don Draper. He's not exactly what he seems. Down to the point where we see him from the back, and he seems confident, right? He seems, especially if you're coming into this show, sort of already knowing the myth of Don Draper. It's kind of fascinating to watch this and then see like he looks nervous and confused when we like swivel around, right? Because the the whole like main dramatic question of this pilot is will don be able to keep the cigarette accounts will he be able to find a way to do an ad about smoking that gets around this problem where they can't say that it's healthy and it's just again such a fascinating problem to have but that's the thing that's what's great about this pilot is that it's all about character reversals and character surprises just characters doing things that you don't expect and you investing in them because they surprise you that's my takeaway anyway so okay Next scene, we meet Midge, who uh, it, it's kind of fascinating because I don't want to give stuff away here. Uh, Midge is played by Rosemary DeWitt. And I, I think, though, Will, you might already have an impression that I get the impression that, that they intended for her to be a bigger character in the pilot than she ultimately ended up being. Uh, just because, like, that's pretty like incredible casting. Like, Rosemary DeWitt's pretty well, yeah, pretty well known, right? But she's not in the show that yeah, much. Yeah, I mean. She's not a household name in a way that some other actors in the show have become. But yeah, I get what you mean. Like there was a time between like 2011 and 2012 where she was basically in everything. And there's uh, deservedly so because, I mean, she's a fantastic talent. But if you watch this pilot, as I did, you know, I I feel like I get that impression like, oh, she's going to be quite a big character, you know, devoting the second scene of this pilot strictly to her, basically. And uh, you're saying that that is not the case moving forward? I will not say either way, but uh, <laughs> it's. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be as coy as I can and let you experience this show fresh. But it, it is something that did stick out to me of uh, like, oh, yeah, you know, every time I watch this, I'm just like, Mitch, you know, she's kind of uh, this ingenue, right? Um, did that hit you too? Did you even remember her from the show, Mike? I did. I She's always that, that face I recognize in shows, but have no idea who she is. And, and she pops up. Yeah, like United States of Terra. Yeah, and it's and she's also the first person you see Don Draper go to to kind of like bounce the idea off of. I guess after this this waiter, like and like you can tell that he drops his guard with and trust to talk about what is on his mind. Right? He's obviously in a time of need, and he's going to her to bounce these mm-hmm. ideas off of. So it's giving you nothing but signals of this is an important important person in in Don's life. You might even think girlfriend. Which makes the end of the episode just so good and hits you so hard. 
Yeah, were you expecting that when you first watch the show? I mean, there are some people who say that it's not that great of a twist because there's so much foreshadowing to it. But I remember when I first watched it, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, like I was not expecting him to have like a wife and kids, but I guess we'll get to that. No, it definitely hit me. I, I was definitely shocked, especially the first time I watched it. Um, like I knew January Jones was involved in the show. I didn't know who she was. I assumed she'd be another secretary. Right. Yeah. I mean, for me, I felt like January Jones is one of, became one of the breakout stars of the show. So both times I've seen the pilot, I kept being like, when are they going to introduce January Jones? And both times I was kind of surprised that she's not really in the pilot until the last five or three minutes. So, and I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think she gets better at acting as she goes along. Like I remember, uh, last Man on earth was the first time where I was just like, okay, she's really kind of getting the handle on the acting thing. And there's a couple, there's one episode in season one where I remember she was holds her own where she kind of gets like her, uh, chance to really get the spotlight that, but that episode i, I think and the pilot the I feel like, is it the one that paul feig directed um i'd have to double check i remember it's one of the standout episodes of season one i think it's i mean shoot um, is one of the standout episodes but yeah yeah but i remember in the pilot it still felt like she was kind of uh, figuring out the whole action she's barely thing, in it i don't even think so. that was kieran ship right. at the very end they like they didn't have allison right. brie as uh, Trudy, that yet. Was, that's literally a picture. Yeah, of, I was gonna um, bring that up. That picture, Matthew Weiner's mom. He pulls it up, and I'm like, "Who the fuck is that woman?" <laughs> like, it's Matthew Weiner's yeah. mom. You can definitely tell it's a mom. I was like, "That is not somebody." A 26 year old. Yeah, she's not in her early twenties. Yeah. <laughs> she's yeah. I mean, she was, I guess, when the, she took that photo, but uh, I didn't. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so. That scene with Midge is really great just because I think that uh, it, it gets a couple other things across, like the really sharp dialogue between like artists. Because like you said, Mike, like this, this is somebody that Don goes to because he's trying, he's looking for creativity and she, she brings that need to him, that need of like, uh, you know, him just sort of uh, that side of him that is just like purely carnal and just kind of like a version of him that makes him feel kind of himself. It's something that we're going to explore a lot over the show. For sure. Uh, but another thing, too, is the, the, the dialogue here. Where I, I wrote this down because my one of my favorites in the whole episode where he's like, we should get married. And she's like, you think I'd make a good ex-wife? And I, I don't want to give anything away to Will, but there are things that happen in well, this show <laughs> that it's just like, it's, um, it's wonderful foreshadowing. It's so great. I mean, that reminds me of one of my favorite lines where they, uh, I mean, they invite him before, but Pete was talking about the bachelor party and Don Draper's just like, I'll, you know, I, I forget the line exactly, but he's just like, I'll see you at the next one or something like that, like yeah, implying yeah. that he'll eventually get divorced. And it's like, it's a pretty good throwaway line. I like that. Yeah, because it's even more specific to the idea of like what Don sees in women. And he sees Midge as like a creative counterpart and how he he seems to think that if he had that, he would be happy. And, you know, not a spoiler alert, I guess, to say that that might not be exactly what he thinks, right? Yeah, I think this is actually just highlighting what you're going to see throughout the series of Don just continually not viewing other humans as like people, but people he can use. He like, I feel like he compartmentalizes. Okay. Here is where you fit into my life and I can use you like to further my career, further my ideas. Um, and that's something you just see, you're going to see further in the series. Well, not only that, but like being an advertisement, man, he has to kind of block people off in these like idealized images in order to effectively do his job. Like he has to kind of remove the humanity in some people in order to effectively, you know, compartmentalize, what humanity is in that weird way. And that's mm. something I find really See, fascinating. Where I, differ is, I don't pilot. think he's doing that. I think that he finds himself removed from other people. And I, I think that he has always been an observer from the outside and he's 
he is kind of trying to have a learned understanding and use that to his advantage, yeah. which is why he, like, I don't think it's something that he does actively in order to be cruel to people. I think that that's just like a, but, a but that's going to be the development of, his, of him. Sure. He doesn't I mean, know he's using exactly. him yet. Right. That's what I was going to say. Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. Right. I mean, I'm just, I'm talking about like seeing the pilot itself from somewhat mm. half fresh eyes. Like I know, like I, you've seen the whole show and you know, this development of his already, that's but true. just watching the pilot, that's kind of my impression of him at this onset point. Yeah. I think that that's the pilot does uh, what it sounds like. It, it's doing what it's supposed to do with you, Will, which is like, okay, I want to know more about this character. What makes him tick for us? It's sort of like, okay, we've gotten a pretty comprehensive view of how he ticks after watching seven seasons, but I've always found, I've watched this show at least eight or nine times in like consecutively before. And I never go through an episode and not catch something new about it, specifically about Don himself. There are so many layers here. This is a character that Matthew Weiner clearly just has like a, he just found a bit of a Pandora's box of a character, an intuitive character that just came alive for him. And uh, it's one of the reasons the show is so rewatchable. It's okay. We, we get past the whole Midge thing, and we finally go to Sterling Cooper. And this this next these next couple of scenes bring about, uh, again, a very interesting direction for the show, which is here is our audience surrogate. Here is one of the, arguably one of the protagonists of the entire show. And that's Peggy Olsen, who's played by Elizabeth Moss. This is before Handmaid's Tale. This is before a lot of you know big projects that she would do, really put her on the map for sure. But Peggy Olsen is the new girl. She is, you know, I was waiting for, you know, I was wondering if I should open the show with like, who's that girl? You know, all that fun stuff. But no, um, she is kind of like a great character to sort of introduce us to like, here's the office, here's Joan Holloway. She's kind of the, you know, the character doing all the exposition. And this scene is all about establishing really like, cause, cause the stuff with Midge already did it a little bit, but really this mm-hmm. is, this is a man's world. I'm saying man's world in quotes, the misogyny yeah. of the show, which is one of like misogyny and racism are the two main things. Uh, but this is where the misogyny mm-hmm. comes in and it comes in with like through a lot of stuff in this episode. And I think like her character is so key, at least in my opinion, of, of establishing why the show became so popular because she's the audience surrogate and she gives that opposite uh, perspective that, you know, like it, there's that fear of like if you follow, you know, like this idea of like the like um, the uh, morally gray protagonists, you know, that's been prevalent from, you know, going back to, I guess, Sopranos even before that, where it's like, why do we feel a need to watch this character having someone that's counterpoint like Peggy? be such a prevalent part of the pilot makes you like, okay, like, even though I don't always agree morally with what uh, Dawn is doing, I can at least have some comfort in knowing like I can follow Peggy's perspective throughout this whole thing. Right. And I also love the the quote after the scene in the elevator, right? I wrote down, you got to let them know what kind of guy you are. So they'll know what kind of girl to be. And that it just, it spoke, it just gives you the ick, right? It just makes you feel so gross, but he gets no pushback. Everybody's like, yep, yep, exactly. And, and it doesn't even seem like Peggy, you know, through her actions in the, in the, in the entire first episode, you're like, okay, that's the acceptance of the world, right? Yeah. Well, I just think like a lesser show would have made Pete the audience surrogate and Pete just sucks. Like, I'm sorry. I'm, I don't know if he gets better as this goes along, but Pete is just, you know, this is what I'm going to tell worst, you about. This right? is what I'm going to tell you, Will Ashen. What this show is going to do to you with Pete is make you realize you're Pete Campbell. Get ready. But is that fair yeah. to say, though? I mean, like You're I said, Pete. I'm, but like, I'm like, Pete, too. Yeah. Even Mike's Pete. Sure. Better looking. Yeah, but I just mean that like a lesser show would have probably <laughs> focused on uh, would have focused on him, like the young upstart who's just yeah. trying to make his way into this world. But having it 
spending more time ultimately with Peggy as opposed to Pete really shows, I think, why the show became or so Or they would have done the Mary Tyler Moore, Moore thing yeah. where it's about Peggy sort of being like, I'm going to change the office instead of being sure. a little bit more of that grounded, realistic, like, oh, okay, this is 1960, not 1970. You know, we're right. going to get to like the that, yeah. 70s eventually in Mad Men, but it's going to take a while and it's going to go through. Like, one, okay, here is a flop. I do find with, with this episode, and I don't, I don't know what you two are going to think, but this involves the era itself. And one thing that I think the, the first season is so annoying about in a few of the episodes, but this one in particular, which is it halts everything to be like, by the way, it's the 1960s. Did you did you know that this is the 1960s? Look at this typewriter. They're, they're literally writing dialogue in this. And it, it's it's mismatched to me because it's like it, it's so obviously in there to provoke a response to be like, they think a typewriter is a lot of technology. Like even Peggy is just sort of like, oh, I, they made it so that a, a woman can understand. Oh, I hope so. Like, I'm like, okay, like that's when it starts to get cartoonish. I, and I felt some of it actually was confusing to me. Uh, as far as the technology, at the end of the episode, um, when Don says, uh, if only there was a magic machine, or it's not like there's a magic machine that can copy these pages. I literally oh, yeah, like... It makes identical copies. I was like, <laughs> is he being sarcastic? Or is that like, has the copy machine not been invented yet? I don't think the copy... Yeah, I don't think there are copy machines yet or Xeroxes. I think that's coming. But I think that's the that is the yeah. joke. Uh, because this is the era when like movies weren't made. You know, like they like animated movies, they were still like doing it by hand and like using like pastels and then cells and all that stuff. So yeah, it, it, it's it's pretty weird. It's pretty weird. Um, also, Joan Holloway in this, played by Christina Hendricks, the wonderful Christina Hendricks, and who, who I think goes on to be one of the best characters. In this character, she is a monster. <laughs> like literally, the whole bag over her head speech. I'm watching that. I'm just like, I don't. Every time, I'm just like, I don't remember Joan being this like sadistic, like. But I get it. Like, I it's a it's a function of her character. It does make sense. Um, and I'm I'm so excited to talk about Joan a lot over the show because her and Peggy are two characters who go on very specific paths, and the contrast between them I think is so fascinating. There's an episode way late in the show I cannot wait to get to that really gets to the heart of like what makes them different, but also like how they experience the same hardships. So uh, there, there's definitely a lot of in this episode about like, okay, she's a secretary, but Joan is sort of like, well, if you're really going to be successful, you're going to get married and go out to the country. But you can kind of tell that Peggy's a little bit resistant to that, or you kind of get this little twinkle in her eye that maybe she wants something a little different. Uh, we then meet Pete Campbell. He comes into the show and he he kind of like, uh, oh, oh, I don't want to skip over this part, but Don and Roger kind of make their, you know, their best bud uh, introduction there. Roger, who I think they, they didn't intend for him to be one of the main characters, uh, but which is weird too, because every time I see this first episode, I'm like, did they not? Because he is just, he really comes to life. He's one of, I think, the linchpins of the entire He's show. my favorite character uh, of the entire series. Right. I, I, I love him so much. <laughs> His dialogue's amazing. And it's good. Like, I don't know. I've, I've heard some people say like, well, you know, the, the first season, first episode, it's like, I don't really know. Who, Roger hasn't really come together. I mean, I'm like, this is pretty standard Roger. He's pretty like, he has a lot of great dialogue in this. Uh, John Slattery just destroys this role. I think he takes something that was probably underwritten and like really delivers so well. Uh, he kind of has like a nice little like big brother sort of component for Don but also like he kind of sees through Don's like, you know, Don's trying to put on this facade of like, I'm ready. The lucky strike account's fine. You know, I, I, I'll figure it out. And he's just like, you know, even little Q is like, oh, you're missing a button because like Roger just knows him at this point. So uh, that was fun to point out. 
But anyway, so then we do get to Pete Campbell, who meets Peggy too, and he kind of comes into the office and it just sort of starts just like being relentlessly cruel to her. Uh, but then Don sticks up for her, which uh, you know, I, I I don't know this this Don and Pete stuff. I don't want to say too much, obviously, because we are going to see more of that over the next season. But can I say it's probably my least favorite thing in the episode? Like, it, it comes off very weird to me. There's this whole thing where like Pete wants his job, right? And I'm just, I don't know. It, it, it felt a little bit like uh, overwritten. Uh, I think it me? goes back to your, hey, it's the '60s kind of thing where it was like the climbing the ladder in the corporate world was everything all you were focused on, right? I don't think I've ever walked up to somebody at work that was in a level above me and went, yeah, it's no secret. I want your job. <laughs> it was more subtle earlier when Don is like, there's this kid who comes to my office and looks where he wants his plants. Exactly. Like, oh, that's that's good. good writing. Then, and then uh, they just shoehorn this in of like, okay, watch these two throughout the show. It's, I think that's, you know, qualms of a pilot, right? They, they have to make sure you get mm-hmm. it. Will, why is Pete your favorite character? Is it because he reminds you of you? Don't be putting words in my mouth there, John. I actually, I mean, I generally agree, I think, with what Mike is saying, which is it doesn't bother me as much because it just feels very much like we are the pilot of the show and we kind of need to establish these things because we're the first episode. And I mean, maybe that's just me putting my blinders on because I know the show progresses as it goes past this point. But uh, yeah, I mean, watching this, I, that scene you're referring to where it's just like they have this weird, like, not quite brotherly relationship not quite father and son relationship but not quite colleagues relationship and it's just like this is the very scripted moment where we have to establish character dynamics and it's like i get it it serves its point it's not poor because the acting and the direction pulls it off but at the same time it's not the scene i reflect on and be like yes this is mad men and it's peak <laughs> yeah it's you know it's the I mean? past yeah. versus the future but at the same time it's kind sure. of weird isn't it because uh because because well i have a question for you how old do you think don draper is in this episode and there is a canonical answer i'm gonna guess somewhere between 38 and 42 he's 35 okay I, yeah yeah it makes sense it's yeah. weird right because it's like john ham doesn't look 35 <laughs> like he looks like well, he's always around 40 but in a very handsome yeah. way i guess is that yeah weird? i mean he's always had that old-fashioned yeah. uh look to him right and i felt like this show was just like the right thing at the right time for him but I mean, John Hamm as actor is such a sort of fascinating conundrum because he is your kind of classic example of a character actor born in a leading man's body. Is that fair to say? Uh, I think it's fair to say. I, I think that he was born to play this role, that's for sure. Well, I just mean that like he never really found the fame until the show, I think, because he was pursuing more of a comedy career before this. And it was one of those things where he just never quite found his niche because I think he was trying to play these sort of goofy, like almost bro-y frat roles that just sort of eluded him because a lot of Hollywood producers are just like, you're just too handsome for what you're trying to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's trying to and be Bradley Cooper gets a role, like, before there was Bradley Cooper. I mean, he does pull yeah, off his exactly. bridesmaids. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying he's an unfunny guy. I'm just saying that sure, I think sure. what he was trying to do before this was not playing to his strengths, I guess, or that he was trying to avoid what he ultimately was bound to do, which is a sort of role like this where he is perfectly cast, but sort of playing against what he was pursuing the acting career for. And you see a lot of the roles past Mad Men. He's trying to go for comedy, like you said, with even during the show, he's trying to do like a Mad or a uh, Brad's made supporting role. And then like after this, he's doing like the White Hot American Summer uh, spinoff show and like all these other comedic things. And they're, you know, some of them work, some of them don't, but it just seems like 
he's a like I said, a trish, traditional dramatic leading man actor who just wants to do the standout supporting role actor. Like I think in his mind, the role he would love to play is like Philip Seymour Hoffman in Along Came Polly, and he just can't play that because he's just too damn handsome for that. I'll I'll, I'm, I'll jump on two things. I, I... I'll, uh, I just want to take offense for Philip Seymour Hoffman, RIP, for you basically calling him ugly. No, no, no. No, I'm not. You said it. No, you I'm not saying it. he's ugly. No, I, I didn't say he was. I didn't yeah, say he's he was just ugly. Saying Philip, You're words he's he's just mouth. saying that Philip Seymour Hoffman isn't so, handsome enough exactly. for him. That's all. I also, Mr. <laughs> no, I'm saying it, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, I, okay, I, I'm glad you brought up Wet, Wet Hot American Summer, too, because I will not stand for Bradley Cooper or Racer saying He's trying to beat Bradley Cooper before Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper is in Wet Hot American Summer, which predates the original. Mad That's Man. true. That's true. I was thinking of Wedding Crashers more, but and I wasn't pulling off pulling to Bridesmaids, but sure, sure, sure. I'm here to keep you straight, man. Okay. I, I appreciate it. I need that. You know, you're you're as advertised, Mike. Um, there's also a scene that I kind of skipped over, but uh, we we kind of have one of our first very like uh, I call them winerisms where it's kind of like a more surreal dream sequence and it's not even really a dream sequence it's literally just don sort of on his couch looking up at a fly trapped in a fluorescent light gee i wonder what that represents uh, it's pretty on the nose and it's it's weiner does it much better later especially because like he even layers well, in like kind of what i was referring to where it's like the bombs exploding in the background it's like okay like it, it's it's pretty lame the funny thing for me is like when I see that scene, I'm like, oh, this is actually Fly before Fly became a thing in Breaking Bad. I, I think uh, what's what's most interesting about it is that you can kind of see how Weiner's trying to like take, and, and I actually haven't read the original screenplay, so it might have been in there originally, but I do think that he's taking some of his more surreal like storytelling approaches, which I think are some of my favorite you know quirks of his writing, and trying to mix them with like some of these mandates I think he was getting from AMC, where it was like, okay, you need we need this mysterious backstory for Don, you need to throw in the Purple Heart, you need you know do all this extra stuff, and it's like you don't need it. Like I, one of the things that like is appealing to, for me about Don Draper is the mystery aspect. It is the he's an anti-hero, and unpacking that stuff in a more elegant way, I think, is way more important than trying to like scintillate the viewer and be like, "Don't worry, we're gonna like do all this crazy dramatic stuff." Like none of that is necessary, in my opinion. But, I hated yeah. that Purple Heart scene because it. I, I just I, <sighs> I hate the fact that he closes it and it has to show us. Oh, it says Don Draper on it. Who looks at a Purple Heart? in on like in their private office that isn't theirs well we wouldn't know we don't have purple hearts to be fair. i i maybe we i would. have a purple heart not like the military one okay. it's it's a medical condition it's because i smoked <laughs> too many lucky strikes but you don't yeah yeah you did you, you didn't you don't look at it in your office you're right um okay so this next scene uh we have peggy showing up in this like doctor's office i don't think this is the next next scene but it's one of the next scenes and super uncomfortable doctor's appointment uh where he's basically like again it's more of like look it's the 60s doctor smoking a cigarette in the office being extremely like unprofessional and being like well you don't want to be the town pump do you (laughs) like it's just so it reminded me i mean we just saw call jane at sundance you and i john and it kind of reminded me seeing that scene uh in that film i know that wasn't the 50s or 60s i think but it did call back to that scene at least that in my scene's mind. in the 70s yeah and uh it's it is it is kind of funny isn't it um, i think it was the 70s i could be wrong about that but yeah and then we also move on to our first mad men like client meeting it starts off super smooth where because because we already gla- glossed over a little bit how um uh, they're going to be meeting with a jewish client uh played by 
Uh, Maggie Siff, her name is Rachel Minkin, and she owns a department store with her father, and she's Jewish. And so Roger, his harebrained scheme is like, we, not, we need to find somebody who works here who's Jewish. And I, I think that it, this is one of those immediate, like, Don is actually like, he is a product of the time too. Like he's not some sort of like racially progressive or like, he's not a feminist. He's none of this stuff. He, he immediately is like, you know, are there any Jews who work here? Is like not on my watch. And you're just like, Oh, okay. Like he is racist. It's just like, there was a little bit of a glimmer of like him not being racist to get the audience to kind of like him and sympathize with him in that first scene. But you can also reread that scene as like, he's trying to get something from the black waiter, you know? So he may not be like racist in a traditionally prejudiced way where he's like, I wouldn't even talk to it. No, it's, it's more of like, he, he just sees people as people to use and he doesn't, you know, it's, it's a different, you know, type of racism. And so you clearly see it when he is uh, being extremely like, uh, uncool, you know, not great. He's having a bit of a gamer moment, uh, when, uh, Jewish people get brought up. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, it's a one-two punch of he's racist and sexist because it's a Jewish woman, you know, and he just, you know, feels undermined and also feels that he is, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. You know, it's very clean uh, pilot writing. I also love sure. the way the scene reads, right? Because it's, he makes the, the, the mistake, so it's misogynistic. And then as the viewer, you're, you're assuming, oh, Dawn, you're like so classist as well that like you don't even recognize the artist. And then it's not until after you get a little aside from John Slatter, you and you realize, oh, that's the dude that John, that's the Jew that John picked to come into the room. So that's why Don didn't recognize him. Yes, yeah, because you're just like, oh, he doesn't know his employees. Now he does have that meeting with Sal earlier in the episode, where you know we get our Sal scene, and the show just again, the show gets so much better at this later. And I know I'm, I'm kind of picking the pilot apart. It's because I've seen it so many times that like I've I've praised it so many times that I want to be a little bit negative, I guess, but. The Sal stuff. It's like, <laughs> how many times do you need to like make it clear? Like, especially in like the later scene in, in the uh, the slipper room or whatever, the automat, where it's like we get it. Like Sal's a closeted homosexual in New York, yeah. and like they. Oh, I wanted to. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go I actually wanted to bring this up only because, um, for whatever reason, my recollection of this scene, like Sal, of all like of Don's lackeys, like he gets the most attention as pilot. Like Harry and the other guys don't really get developed until True. later uh, um but in this for some reason in my mind like the the sal being a closeted gay man was a lot more subtle in uh my mindset but in this pilot it's like it couldn't be more apparent rewatching. it's just like he's very obviously a yeah. gay man trying to adapt himself into a straight working environment and the pilot seems to go out of his way basically every time he's on screen be like he is gay don't forget he's gay. <laughs> hey, did you know actually he's actually a gay man? Again, and, and, oh, uh, and I don't oh, think way. it's because they're trying to be true to the era. I think it's because they, they think the audience is dumb and they I, want the audience to not? have that sort of shoe-hin horn drama. I don't think it's an issue of like them being yeah. like stuck in the 1960s or like pilot writing. I think it's an issue of 2007. <laughs> I think, you know, like... No, We're yeah, still getting hanging out because, about you, yeah, Chuck yeah. and Larry in that era, right? There's, there's a lot of <laughs> yeah. gay media that's not great. Well... Yeah, I mean, but I mean, to the pilot's credit, and maybe this is false to say, but I, I don't get the sense that they're judging him no. because he's gay. Like, it's just more like they're trying to plant no, the no, seed. No, yeah. Like, I, it's something, yeah. Like, it doesn't feel like unprogressive that he is gay, but rather just like this is something you need to know about him going forward. 
to the point where we're going to develop his character more than the other advertising guys outside of Pete and Don and Roger. And there's the there's the line there. when when Don is getting the report from the woman, and it just I wrote it's so good of him saying. So you're telling me people are living one way and thinking the exact opposite? <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, and I think that, like, especially because uh, it's it's not even like uh, like the whole thing where he trashes psychology. Like psychology and advertising went hand in hand, like for a long time, way before the '60s. So it is kind of interesting that, like, even for his time. Don thinks himself like a modern man, you know, he thinks himself this like metropolitan, whatever, cosmopolitan genius. And he, he is a genius in the show, but for sure, like there is that obvious disconnect of like, there's just a lack of self-awareness. And it's one of the first hints that like, this is not a character that you're watching because you think he has it all together. He clearly lacks like this self-actualization that it, it seems like an impossible obstacle. It might take seven seasons for Don to self-actualize. I hope you threw but a then The, the pilot does kind of back him up, though. I mean, I'm jumping to it, you know, when Pete uses mm-hmm. the research. And he says, if, if it was good, I would have used it, right? But you know why? Because he's not selling to Lee Garner Jr., He's selling to the debt. He's selling to the older man. And it's of course, of course, he's going to sell that idea to the same stuck in their head generation. Because that's another thing of like cigarette advertising did lean on and be extremely successful from that research, from that whole idea of like smoking is cool. Like I smoking is cool and even though it's dangerous, is something that echoed like into our like upbringings. I, I, I remember stuff like that, you know, not on TV, but I think like you could see it on like billboards or whatever. You heard it here first. Oh, I mean, the classic Joe yeah. Camel. I remember that as a kindergartner. <laughs> like, they had to be like, we can't sell a scavenger hunt for ki- or, for our cigarette company because kids will want to indulge in this. So, so they made a, they made a, a cartoon a, camel you just couldn't say no to. Yeah, a they bit were, of a faux pas for the ad industry. Yeah, To do drugs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, smoke cigarettes. To smoke cigarettes. To be clear. Yes. Uh, so they have the meeting with Rachel Mankin. And part of the part of the reason Don really fails this entire interaction is a he's super nervous about the lucky strike meeting because he has nothing and it's coming up and he just doesn't care about this. Like we already established, like he's racist, like he, he doesn't take the client seriously. And he has some really great. The, the first line that Matthew Reiner wrote for the script is in this scene, which uh, I'm going to butcher it. But it's, it's something along the lines of like. I'm not going to let a woman speak to me this way. You know, this meeting is over, essentially. That was the first thing that Matthew Weiner wrote. And it speaks a lot to one of the running themes of the show, which is Don sort of trying to get past his masculine insecurities. I think that's how Matthew Weiner... Matthew Weiner said that in an interview once. I think that's how he characterizes the journey of Don Draper, is this guy who just does not believe in himself. And he just believes in this like image, this advertising image of what a man is because he had to learn it. He had to acquire it through like, you know, pretending to be somebody as we'll find out over, you know, like who he really is and all that stuff. And this scene really nails that through him handling the situation so poorly. It's a great scene, especially because Rachel Vinkin is completely right. (laughs) And like, they can't handle it. She's like a coupon. (laughs) Oh my gosh. It's fantastic. Housewives, they love those coupons. Housewives and house mics. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I was curious to what you thought, Will, of uh, of the Rachel Minkin scene. Like, because what, what were you picking up on? Like, in terms of like, did you think that this was like a character that was going to come up again, or did you think like, were you surprised that she comes back at the end of the episode? 
Well, my first initial thought was, is that Haley Atwell? <laughs> I, <laughs> no. uh, I don't know. I, I, I kept thinking that was Haley Atwell for some reason. But no, I mean, I was really impressed by Maggie Sis' performance. I was trying to remember, what else has she hit? What has she been in? I, I couldn't remember exactly. Sons of Anarchy. Um, that's that's like one of the okay. biggest, yeah. I feel like I've seen her something else because I have not watched Son of the, Sons of Anarchy, to be clear. But um, yeah, no, I was really taken by her performance and her character. And I am excited, hopefully, to see her in future episodes of this show. Sounds oh, good to me. Well, I think you might be on luck, pal. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we're, we're not giving anything away. Uh, well, she said she'd no, be in I, Monday she, morning. She's, that's just, that's not giving it away. Yeah, yeah, we'll see her on Monday morning. Yeah, yeah, next time we talk, will be Monday. Uh, yeah, anyway, so... So they have this meeting, doesn't go well as we established, and uh, we get a little bit more of the interaction between Don and Pete, which th- this is, I, I know I was kind of complaining earlier, but oof, like Pete really sells that line or like that, not the line, I guess, but like the entire motion of like, he basically extends a hand out to Don and he's like, I'd follow you into combat blindfold. It's so cringe, but like, there's literally like the shot the composition of it where there's like a blue light behind them. You just really see their silhouettes. You see the hand raised, but there's a divider like right in between them. And then Don is literally, I don't want to wake up pregnant. Let's take it a little slower. I don't want to wake up pregnant. And it's just, ah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And then Pete, of course, walks away. And like, th- this is something that I never picked up on before. Again, like I always get something new out of the show. Pete doesn't just say like, fuck you. He looks around first because he's a sniveling coward. And we're all Pete Campbell, but he looks around and then he he feels comfortable enough to drop the, yeah, yeah. Clearly it's for himself. Um, yeah, I really like the scene. That scene really, I, I also caught the look around and that's the first time I really was like, oh, Pete, th- there's a bit of Randall from Monsters, Inc. and Pete here. You know, it's, he's a, he's a product <laughs> of the people around him and their perceptions of him. Well, I mean, since we brought up the whole Pixar thing, I was just going to mention off the ha- off the cuff here that I feel like this whole movie is basically Brad Bird's wet dream. And the only thing that could make it more of his wet dream is if there was a robot walking around the office. So I just wanted to say that at some point in this episode. So there you go. You got it off your chest. (laughs) All right. Well, the next scene is, it's fascinating. We're about halfway through the episode and this is the climax of the episode, arguably. It's kind of interesting because it's structured in a way where like the whole episode has been leading up to this, but we still have like half the episode to go when they finally have the, the infamous lucky strike scene. And a lot of things happen here. The first big Don speech, something that the show becomes known for. Uh, the first time I really like engaged with the show was when I was in college for advertising because they would show this scene along with a couple others from the first season. Uh, because around the time the show was airing, again, it was like hitting Netflix. And that's when I started watching it for sure. But uh, no, yeah, specifically, this is the scene where Don has one of the one of the most memorable speeches yet. Uh, one of the most memorable taglines too. Uh, but before that happens, he's floundering. He is failing miserably to basically like he, he I've been in this situation before <laughs> where you're in a meeting and you're supposed to deliver something. And for whatever reason, I have nothing like I've been in an advertising. I've been in a pitch meeting where like somebody's expecting something and like if this happens, it's because I realize my idea won't work or uh, they say something that's just like, but it's not like we're going to do this thing that I have just prepared for. And I've had to completely improvise on the spot. And it's, I just, I don't know how you two read Don in this scene, but for me, it's empathy because I'm like, oh, I've been there. It's it's the worst feeling. Like when you're on the spot and it's just like, you're trying to stall and you're like, I'm a lucky strike man from way back. <laughs> I was I was having a little bit of uh, some trauma. I was hearing bombs exploding is what I'm trying to tell you guys. 
That's interesting. I feel like, uh, especially the first time I watched it, a little bit the same thing this time, but I felt disappointed in Don, right? Because you come in, especially for me, and watch it out live with this, Don Draper's a hero, right? Don Draper's a legend. It's been set up in the in, in the episode. You're, Pete's going to follow him blindly. You see the awards on his wall. Right. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, he's going to come up with something, and he doesn't. And he's just, and you're a little embarrassed for him. But then I also, he, he comes up with the idea, right? And I felt a lot like Junior, where John Slattery goes, gentlemen, I think we all know what just happened here. And I felt just like him, like, do we? Like, what What was so great about what he just said? <laughs> That's the thing. He brings it home with the happiness speech. Uh, now, before that happens, you know, Pete Campbell kind of swoops in and does the research idea. Which we know, that's the thing, is like when you rewatch it especially, you're just like, oh yeah, like it's not that that idea doesn't work, it's that, that the client isn't always right. And that's not what the client needs to hear. Like you even see Lee Garner Jr. is sort of like, that's interesting. But then the dad is just like, we're going to tell them that cigarettes are dangerous. And that's a problem. It's that they're not ready to recognize that, yeah, that ship has sailed. Like you can't keep denying that like cigarettes are dangerous, which is all like the point of that research that people know, but they don't care. Instead, Don is trying to go for this whole thing instead, where it's just like, just ignore the problem and be happy with your product. And that to me is the beauty of the pitch. It's not that the pitch is good. It's that it's well executed. I think that's what it's trying to do. What do you, what do you think, Will? Uh, I feel like this scene is what I call Don Draper's house moment, where if you remember yes. the Fox TV <laughs> show House, uh, where he, Laurie, played Dr. House, and you watch the pilot of that show if you watched it, and you're like... And thankfully, Mad Men doesn't huh. abuse this like House does. No, I know. I know, I, I know. To the point where House, it basically became a joke where he would just be like, I'm this toxic male character who is, you know, basically half abusing my staff and doing this bad stuff. But then at the end of the episode, I have the perfect cure and I figured this all out. And I basically knew this the whole time, but I didn't want to reveal my hand. Uh, I don't think the Madman falls for the same traps. I think that's part of the reason why the show became so famous and so popular. But I did feel a lot like I did when I watched the pilot for house where it was just like, can we really trust this Don Draper guy They keep hyping him up? But I don't know. He seems like he's flailing a bit, but we'll wait. He's got an idea. What's this? He's going to the chalkboard. That means, uh, you know, can I trust this guy? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then it's like, oh man, it's toasted. You know what? This guy might have what <laughs> you know it what? takes. Maybe it is toasted. John, have you ever been in a meeting where you had to ask your client, how is your product made? <laughs> um tell me no i well i have i've asked questions about like processes and you know it's it is something that like you know when you you can have like those sorts of like frank conversations so it's not something that struck me as sort of like who would ask that but i do think it's funny that like I, one guy didn't even know it's like shame on you i was gonna ask you if you're gonna have a moment where you came to the chalkboard and wrote it's toasted <laughs> and the people are like we're selling baby food what are you talking about <laughs> <laughs> oh man the the average that is one of the the gateway pleasures of the show. It's like one of the things that people get into the show for because they don't know like the layers underneath, but they're just like a show about advertising. A lot of people find that world interesting. If you work in advertising, if you are sort of that person who, you know, uh, has, has, is interested in that, because especially like in today's day and age, there are so many like gig economy workers or so many people who have, who have to do advertising and marketing on their own budgets. And, you know, Mad Men is one of those shows that people refer to when it comes to like creativity and like, oh, if you want to be good at marketing, watch Mad Men. And I've always rejected that because I don't think the show 
is about that at all. But it, it what it's about is sort of how advertising is used. It's not about advertising. It's just about the the parallels between how some people approach it and how other people do and what that has to do with us as human beings, why advertising is a thing in the first place. And that's what I love about this whole scene is the, the stark difference between how somebody like Pete Campbell thinks that you should pitch advertising, which is, you know, oh, it's, it's this sort of thing where you have to like get into people's heads and just try to get them to, um, to, to affect them and change them to get them to do something. Whereas Don's approach is, no, Don is a storyteller. He's a creative writer. He's somebody who understands that in order to get somebody to buy something as he sees it, they, the ad man has to create an emotional connection between the person and the product. And then we have that speech later in the episode between him and Rachel about this. But I think that is like, that's it. Like that is the baseline of who Don is and how he sees advertising. He wants that emotional connection with people. He can do that with advertising, but he struggles to do that in real life. That's the show. We do it in the pilot. It's great. That's why it's now we know what the show is going to be. That's why it's one of the greatest pilots. It really gives you that strong undertone of, yeah, it sets it up completely for what's this arc going to be the entire series. Yep. Yep, for sure. Um, and then I want to reiterate, yeah, when Don is just like, I pulled that out of thin air. <laughs> like, thank you up there. And then Roger's just like, you're looking in the wrong direction. <laughs> because, yeah, the, the show reminds you. It's just like you're you're feeling good about Don basically selling death sticks. And uh, it's, it's pretty messed up. So then next up, we have the we still have a bunch of the episode to go. Uh, it is kind of interesting how it how it's structured that way, and it really works because there's the resolution of like, no, that this isn't the point of the episode. It's it's a reversal. It's like you think the dramatic question of the whole thing is, will Don save you know Lucky the Lucky Strike account? But that's not what it is. The real question is going to be, are these people going to find a connection at the end of this long work day? And so with Don, we see that played out through this dinner he had or this drink he has with Rachel with Pete. He goes to the automat and with Peggy, she's, she's hanging out, uh, listening to records in her room, which, uh, I found that more relatable. Um, but yeah, so we have the, the conversation between Don and Pete where Don has like basically picked up like, Hey, you know, like, I know you looked at the research in my trash can and kind of argues for himself and all that good stuff. Uh, I, I did want to mention, um, too, because, uh, Ken Cosgrove, who I don't even know, Will, if you remember him by name in this episode, but uh, he he's one of the, he's one of the like bachelor party guys. Uh, he's he's a bit of a I, I never get over this, Mike. How he changes so much over the course of the show, right? Because in this episode, he puts it on. He's like he's basically Harry what Harry Crane becomes, right? I'm literally just now realizing what you're meaning. Like I I watched that entire first episode and didn't even connect that that's who he becomes because it's so different. Right. And then Harry is the other way. And it's, it's something that it's like, yeah, it's fascinating. The more I watch the show and see like what they're doing with those characters, I do wonder, it's like how much of it is intentional, how much of it happened organically. And that's something that I'm going to be paying attention to over the rest of the first season is what is it about Ken? Cause I remember some stuff from the first season that does establish that there is more to him than this pilot sort of suggests, because I think, especially for you, Will, since you're coming into it way more fresh, um, I don't know how much you remember of the ad guys. But it, it is kind of interesting how they kind of are just the same person several times, right? Like, did any stick out to you? I mean, Sal's the only one that really see. I'm besides Pete, obviously. Yeah. Uh, Sal's the only one that really stands out in this pilot to me. But I know Harry becomes a bigger part of the show. I don't remember the other characters' names particularly well at this point because it's been a decade. But 
Um, yeah, I mean, those are the only Paul. ones that really stand out to me at this point. There's a bit yeah, of, uh, you know, like sure. the Greece, John Travolta's buddies in Greece kind of effect on the, the ad guys in this episode. There's their, yeah, yeah. just to go, ah! Yeah, because these guys, they're all in their mid-20s, yeah, and that, you know, even Don makes the crack about them being like fraternity guys. And uh, yeah, he looks down on them quite a bit, especially because Don, somebody who, as we find out, didn't go to college. Uh, okay, so then Peggy throws herself at Don. I hate this. It's so, like... Like, I get it, it functions, but I just hate seeing it because it's just, it's not Peggy, but I get it. Like, this is Peggy at this point. She thinks that this is what she's supposed to do. And uh, yeah, I, I'm curious, though, Will, what you thought of this scene in, in particular, since you don't have as much context. Um, I mean, I found it less interesting than the scene where she is with Dawn, uh, a few scenes prior, where she kind of, you know, tries to, like, kind of form something because she feels that's like the that's scene what I'm she's supposed about. to do. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about the one with no, Pete no, later she th- on. I was, I I was saying she throws herself at Don. She doesn't throw herself at Pete. Sorry, sorry. Pete throws himself sorry, at sorry. Peggy. Sorry, I was mixing it up. No, I mean, I think the scene's kind of fascinating because it, it's one of those scenes where, like you said, like it, it kind of establishes the complexity of Don as a character because you could have, you know, obviously had a scene where Don kind of indulges this fancy or, you know, kind of indulges Peggy in what she's trying to do, but he's clearly more mature and more thoughtful about this and he you know, uh, it recognized also, that, you know, Peggy's a pretty young, impressionable woman. He just basically puts her down. But obviously, like we said before, he is uh, establishing this sort of sexist mentality where he is not, he's putting her down sort of gently, but also using kind of harsh language at the same time. And sort of this like, yeah, it's, it's a harsh, brutal scene. Yeah, yeah you know, it, it's, it's a harsh, brutal scene, but he's also kind of being gentle with her at the same time. It, it feels very... Uh, resonant for that. I think it's reason. really interesting that your your focus on that scene is Don because I watch it and I'm thinking just a Peggy of I think it shows how hungry she is, oh, uh, yeah. how quick of a learner she is of understanding this is mm-hmm. what I need to do to succeed and going for it on day one, um, which becomes you know becomes mm-hmm. is just so uh, paramount to Peggy's character and uh, and Elizabeth Moss' performance in the scene I think is incredible to be sure absolutely. All right. All fair enough. All fair enough. Uh, we go to the automats and Pete and the boys uh, are at this like, yeah, it's called like the slipper room or whatever. It's his bachelor party. And I, I think really the function of this is once again, okay, Sal is like, I'm gay, but nobody knows and all of that. Uh, there is there is a funny line of dialogue there where she's like, I love this place. It's loud and full of men. And he's like, I know exactly what you mean. And like, we get it. <laughs> like, like, really? Like they linger on it. It's ridiculous. Um, Wait, are you telling me that he's gay? <laughs> Sorry, Sal? I don't want to blow your mind with spoilers. <laughs> Salvatore. Um, yeah, no. Uh, the, then, of course, Pete gets a little bit too handsy with somebody, and he's just a dweeb. I mean, he's just kind of like, he's ruining everybody's buzz. He's desperate. He, you know, we, we already mentioned that, you know, he's getting married and everything like that. And, you know, with he's marrying Matthew Weiner's mom. Good for him. But uh, <laughs> there's a little bit of weirdness of like why Matthew Weiner would write it that way. But whatever. Uh, I guess I, there is some stuff there about how Matthew Weiner, um, he, this era is like when his parents were like, th- this was like the right era for that sort of thing. And we'll, sure. we'll get into that later because there, there's some family All stuff right. with him coming up. Calm down, Sigmund Freud. Hey, yeah, I, <laughs> he invoked it. He invoked it. Okay. So then Don goes to uh, have a drink with Rachel Minkin. I love this scene. I think this is my favorite scene in the pilots. Uh, what do you guys think? Sorry, no, I was all about nipple tassels the scene before. I didn't recover. <laughs> yeah, you needed time after that whole scene, huh? 
Yeah, it, it's the way. No, the, it's so good. Uh, besides the fact that it made me want a Mai Tai, um, because it, you, you've seen Don's rapport with her before. You've seen Don's rapport with another woman. But then you see this this back and forth, and you're realizing, wow, like Don's kind of really meeting his match here. His ego has been a little bit more humbled. Uh, she's not putting up with it. Uh, and I think she becomes the more interesting character for Don to discuss and develop with than anybody you've seen in the pilot thus far. Especially compared to Midge, right? Because Midge is just sort of like unbuttoning her shirt, and she's like, I don't care, free spirit. Whereas Rachel is sort of like, yeah, challenging his worldview, making him sort of like glimpse a different side of himself that yep. he wasn't aware of, maybe. Literally buttoned down equal to him mm, in that respect. Well done, yeah. well done. Yeah, and I, I think my favorite thing about this is, so yeah, when he's, he's talking about you know, that disconnect of like happiness is something that I sell, you know, where before he's saying like, what do people want more than happiness, more happiness? You know, it's just such a great like parallel to this is how he is with these people. This is how he is when he sort of, he starts to have his guard down and it, it entices you because it makes you wonder where, what is he really like? Like, I want to see this character fully his guard down. And that's something that I kind of wanted to mention too, is like, Something that Mad Men gets right from the get-go is how guttural this show is. There's so much texture and like human like roughness to it. Maybe roughness isn't the best word, but like people, there, there's sweat. There is like, especially like when you know Don wakes up in the morning with Midge, like his hair is all messed up. There's a little bit of like, oh, you know, he makes sounds. There's like a little bit of like a, you know, the smoke causes like. I think they did like herbal cigarettes uh, without nicotine throughout the show, but it still like affects well, certainly their for. Voices. Yeah, I mean, certainly for John Hamm, because I read that he, I think he quit smoking cigarettes after college. So all of his cigarettes in the show are herbal fake cigarettes, kind of similar to what they did with um, Stand By Me, where it's like the cabbage cigarettes for the kids or whatever. So yeah. I, I'm more partial to candy cigarettes myself, um, like sure. community, you know? Yeah. But yeah, no, that's something that uh, I, I do appreciate Mad Men for quite a lot is uh, all that stuff. And and the smoking as a motif is, is always like, you know, kind of interesting. Not a lot of shows have that effect because well, they can't really get away with it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, certainly at that time. But I mean, that kind of goes back to the title of the show, like Smoke in Your Eye or Smoke Gets in Your Eye, where this idea of like the 50s and the 60s, people sort of idealize it and nostalgize it. And, and the show itself sort of leans into that as well. Like they are nostalgizing the era, but they're also acknowledging a lot of the hypocrisy, the sexism, the racism of the time. The idea of like how you could, if you lived in that era, literally have like the smoke in your eye not only from the cigarettes but like indulging in that by living vicariously through these characters and being in don draper's shoes like it, it doesn't like sympathize with his character or like say that he's right or wrong but you can understand where he's coming from and in that respect you are literally getting the smoke in your eye you know okay well put all right so then the next scene is when pete throws himself at peggy and i love this character surprise because I remember when I first saw it, I was like, I did not see it coming at all that Peggy would actually accept his advances. But that, again, is what this show does so well. It surprises you with the characters. The characters continuously do things you don't expect, but they do make sense for the character. Peggy got t turned down earlier, and now she finds herself sort of like this man kind of dressing himself down, being super vulnerable and pathetic is something that she's kind of like kind of into she's kind of into this version of p campbell and i do think it's like it's super fascinating especially as the series progresses and she decides that she wants to take him take him into her room i feel bad for marjorie because she knows what's going on like there's no way that apartment seems kind of small but uh, uh you know there is that 
Uh, but yeah, did, did you guys have a similar reaction to this scene or any criticism? Yeah, you know, you just you 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 don't like Pete, right? The, the, the pilot does not make you like Pete, and so it really makes you be like, ah, oh, Peggy, no, why? I also like that it it, it shows that. Pete's not listening to Don. Like he's not he's not listening, he's not learning. He is so stuck in himself in his own ways. Um he got in his own way during the meeting and now he's getting into his own way and his, his self-loathing with Peggy, right? And that's why he's never going to be Don. Agreed. He and he knows he will never be Don, I think. As of this I think this episode gets that across is that like that's his realization. It's like I'm just not that guy. Like, I don't have that smoothness. I don't have that appeal. So he desperately just tries a different tactic. He tries to just be utterly pathetic and desperate. And it works for him. But again, yeah, it's like you said, it's like, it's kind of interesting that the show goes that route. It's like, this guy gets the girl in the end. <laughs> you know, it's kind of weird. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I wanted to add outside of, like the obvious stuff is that uh, I really like how the scene is directed in that Ala Taylor is able to have a pretty clear eye view of what's going on, but at the same time, get us into the mindset of both characters. I mean, from what we know about Peggy and Pete about the scene, like we kind of understand their perspectives going into it, but the way the scene is framed and directed, we also get like what's going on, but at the same time, we understand the intimacy of it and the kind of weird unsettlingness at the same time, I think is really well effectively communicated. And also, I just want to say that as much as, Pete, the character sucks. I think Vincent Cassell, or what's the Vincent Carsizer? Am I getting that? Sorry, Vincent Carsizer. I think for as scummy as that character is, I think that performance is really great, even going back to this pilot. And I know that he, as an actor, has been kind of hard to work with, but I also think he's pretty perfectly cast as his character at the same time. Absolutely. And that is the pilot. Wait, is Don on a train? What's going on? He's going somewhere. Ozening, where is that? What? He has a house and a wife and two kids? So yeah, we get to the pilot pilot twist, uh, I guess if you can call it a twist. Again, some people say it's pretty predictable, but I love this. I, I think that it, it, yeah, it firmly like establishes, it affirms like exactly what the show is, which is Don like literally being another version of himself. He's, he's shown so many identities in this. It's ridiculous. And he goes, of course, and he's, he's kind of trying to, you could tell he's kind of weird and uncomfortable around his own kids. Even like, he's just kind of like staring at them and just being like, I don't care about you almost. Uh, he's been gone a whole, you know, night. And that's the thing is like, he hasn't said a word about his wife or his kids the entire time we've seen him in this pilot episode. Uh, yeah, I think this is terrific. And it, it is interesting that, yeah, January Jones just kind of shows up and it's just like, I'm here. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I do know that they had to sort of like give her more lines than the original script had because she was concerned that her character would not be like, you know, important enough. Uh, and I wouldn't blame her based on uh, how she kind of gets, uh, you know, short shrift in this. But uh, of course, we'll be getting much more January Jones jones later on i mean the only thing i was just gonna say is that something i took extra notice this time is that don as a character doesn't even have like a photo of his kid so far as i can see yeah. in his office which adds to kind of the coldness and the reserve of it and how like he literally needs to take a train to go to his house there's like this idea yeah, that he's literally living basically two lives which also adds to the parallel nature of his reality where he's like him as a character has to accept this idea where he is concocting his life for himself and even when he goes back to his home life that's not really real to him because he's barely spending time with his wife and his kids so yeah really effective stuff yeah i was really struck with this time through i remember the first time 
I always thought the whole thing was Midge was the girlfriend and the big thing was that there was going to be an affair with the Mankins girl and that was going to be the big struggle. So I was really surprised when he went home and he did have a wife and kids. But this time through, I was really struck about I lo- he didn't have the picture of his kids in his office, but the fact that he takes the time to go into the room, I think speaks a lot. And I, it really hit me. of like, okay, Don does love his kids, but I think it scares him. The humanity, the idea that he is a father, it connects him to this world in a way that he does not want to be connected. Um, and on the second time watch through, I'm, I'm excited to kind of watch how that plays out through the series. But it's something I definitely noticed this time. The only other thing I was going to add is that I think it would have been easy for the show to make the relationship between Betty and Don kind of cold. But one thing I really appreciate about the pilot and the scene with them is that it is kind of erotic. Like they're going to be like, they're pretty clear. It's like, yeah, we're going to have sex and not Don doesn't feel like robotic about it. He's like, yeah, I want to have sex with my wife because he's a horny dude. So I think that also kind of adds to complexity of Don as a character and something I really appreciate watching the pilot again. But that's the only thing I wanted to add. Totally, totally. Yeah. And that obvious hypocritical, you know, nature of how he, you know, he kind of acts above it all, but you know, he's, he's cheating on his wife. He's cheating on his girlfriend. He's going to be cheating on his other girlfriend. Yeah. It's pretty, but he's still attracted to his wife. That's the right, other thing. Yeah. I, I mean, that's just what I find so fascinating. Yeah. But that's the thing is like, yeah, we're. I feel like this whole conversation has been a lot of setup because obviously there's so much more. We just, we got to take these little notes, little mental notes because there, there's so much to unpack there in terms of like, okay, how does he really view Betty? How does he view these kids? And I think, yeah, the rest of the show is really going to build that out more and more in greater and greater detail. I'm so excited because I think we're going to, we're really going to get into some good stuff here. And, uh, yeah. So my first, my first, uh, as we wrap this up question for, I want to start with you, Mike, you know, you've already alluded a lot to sort of like, Oh, you know, this was interesting how like coming back from the show, but I guess, I guess my question for you though, like for like what's next, you know, is after the, after this episode ended, were you like ready to watch more? Did you feel like, ah, I wish I could watch the next episode or are you kind of like savoring a little bit of like, you know, I I'm, I'm into it, but I'm not like in that binge mode yet. No, this. I absolutely am ready for more. I, I finished episode one. Um, I watched it. So I'm, I'm doing the rewatch on my own just because it's a lot easier to schedule. My girlfriend has never seen Mad Men. And I okay. got done with episode one. And all I could think about was like, I got to watch this again with Hannah. It's such a good show. Everybody needs to watch this. If you haven't seen it, watch it. So it, it, it got me excited again. Awesome. Same question for you, Will. Yeah. I mean, the weird thing for me is that I... Remember watching the first season in a time span where it's like it was probably within two or three weeks, but I remember taking the time to really uh, reflect on the show and think about it because I don't know if it was because I was a teenager because I TV wasn't so prevalent prevalent in my life where I was like I'm watching and binging all these shows all the time. But I was expecting to have a similar experience with the pilot, and it felt for me like the thing that surprised me the most rewatching is like I really want to watch the second episode now. I thought it would be more like, oh, I want to sit and reflect on this. I was like, no, actually, if I had the time and the availability outside of this podcast, I'd probably watch two or three more episodes because it's, it's a really effective pilot and I want to know more about Dawn again. So, yeah, that is a credit to the show. Yeah. And, but the good thing is we will be taking our time. And the good thing about that is that we will be sitting with these and having great conversations, I hope. And I think this is going to be a great first season of Mad Men, men. Uh, we're still figuring out the kinks to this, but this has been a lot of fun. This has been a very insightful. Uh, thank you for hearing me out on my random criticisms, uh, which were certainly some of them probably were a little bit, probably went a little bit too far. Uh, but yeah, uh, I guess that is, I don't, I don't know how to end this. I don't know how to, do we just shut the door and have a seat? 
That is a, that is a reference, Will, of the third season. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. I was going to say. Game. Oh, yeah, yeah, I thought we could do the Mad Men Minute. John, you're in advertising. Mad Men Minute. So I, there's no better okay. person to, to judge it. You give us a product. We have a minute to pitch it. Whoever has the best idea wins. But should I do it? I'm the host, right? So, you know. Okay, fine. I'll do it. This um, could be a whose line is anyway. I, to, I feel like you want to. Where it's like. You it it, do it the rotates. Line, it rotates. Maybe everybody plays. Everybody judges. There's a lot of episodes. That's fine. Okay. Yeah, we can have fun with it. All right. Well, here's the product. This is going to be a direct reference to something in the episode, because why not? Uh, the product is the movie Bambi. What's your tagline, Will? Oh, yeah, we get a minute. My, oh, yeah, I was going to say, do I get some time to think about this for a minute, or do I have to go instantaneous John, tagline? how is Bambi made? Uh, <laughs> well, Mike, when two deer <laughs> love each other very much out in the forest, um, and also you cannot use a tagline, Book of the Century. Sorry. I have mine. Ding, ding. That one's taken. Go ahead, Mike. Bambi. His or her, I can't remember what gender Bambi is. Mom got toasted. <laughs> His mom got toasted. Bambi's a boy. All right, all right. Uh, do you have one, Will? Uh, oof. I'm trying to remember, because I know Bambi was, like, the biggest movie of that year, but I didn't know if that was, like, because of the buzz afterwards or if it was because of, like, the build up before it, like with the book. So I was trying to remember exactly, but um Bambi, I thought was the nineteen. I was trying to think of something. Like, I'm checking right now. Was it the nineteen fifties? I thought so, but I could, I could be wrong. Maybe it was, I that was nineteen forties. But I could be wrong. Nineteen forty two. Oh, well, man, I was way off then. Yeah, you're a whole uh, generation away. <laughs> right, I was probably yeah, thinking exactly, of uh, yeah. Alice in Wonderland. That was fifties. Yeah. Well, when was uh, Snow White? Snow White was thirty eight. That's the first one. 38, okay. Yeah, Cinderella's 50, yeah. and uh, Sleeping Beauty's... I think Sleeping Beauty is 60s, but... No, you're stalling, Will Ashton. What is your tagline? Mm-hmm. Uh, I was going to say something like, Bambi, see a life anew. See a, see a life vague. anew? Wait, what? Yeah. See it. Because you're seeing wildlife, and you're seeing animals as you've never seen them before oh, if you're well, in the 1940s. Oh, that's not a tagline. So. That's just words. Bambi, <laughs> see a life anew. There's so many vowels in that, we, you think it's a word, I guess. Yeah, we have to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's your first riddle guess, huh? Well, we're gonna have to, Mike. I think we have to work on um, Will's uh, advertising. Maybe shops. I'll get better at advertising as this uh, that, show goes. That's the pitch of the show. He like, hasn't seen talk about as much as Yeah, you're right. We're gonna talk I'm about advertising Pete. at the end of every episode, and Will's gonna get so yeah. smart. I'm a Pete, you know. I, I'm, I'm an ingenue <laughs> to this, so maybe I'll get better or worse. You're gonna show up with like a binder full of research. We're gonna land Will's job exactly. This is just gonna go straight onto his LinkedIn. I don't have a good one. I wasn't. I wasn't really thinking, but um, I'll, I'll say. Uh, I don't know. Yes, dear. There you oh go. dear. Yeah, yeah, that works too. Uh, John, dear, it's my name. All right, that is Mad Men. Men. We'll be back to talk about the second episode. Uh, I forget. I forget what the second episode's called. No, Marriage of Figaro is the third episode. Uh, it's like the ladies' I room or forget, something. Yeah, something to do with the women. Women's closet, water closet. Oh, I have it right here. Bring it up right now. Ladies' room. You were right. Good job. And uh, we also did mention that this came out July 19, 2007, and the show dates it uh, as taking place in March. Uh, so there you go. Even though, Enovid, I'm pretty sure the birth control pill wasn't approved by the FDA until June 1960, which I only know because I read about that. Um, okay. You know a lot about it. policing women's bodies, John. <laughs> it's the only thing I know about. Uh, no, I re- please redact that from the record. 